invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text this Lord's Day, as it's found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Daniel 9.24 Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. <clears throat> the single most important three days in all of history are the three days in which the Lord of glory was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead on behalf of his people. God's eternal plan for history from the very point of creation forward to those three days in the ministry of Christ or beyond those three days, history afterwards is looking back to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ over the curse of sin, over the miseries of this life, over death, over sin, over Satan, over hell itself. That is when, those three days, that is when the glory of God's justice in punishing sin and the glory of God's mercy in atoning for sin was realized. In the Old Testament, prophecies are numerous. The prophets, in many passages of Scripture, are pointing to, prophesying concerning those times that were yet to come, when Christ would die and be buried and be raised again from the dead. Think of the prophecy and the promise that was made right after the fall of Adam and Eve. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. That's speaking again of, of the death of Christ upon the cross and his resurrection that through that he would destroy sin and Satan and hell and death. Or think of the promise made to Abraham that uh, the seed of Abraham would become a blessing to all the nations of the world. All the families of the world would be blessed in Abraham's seed. And Paul says in Galatians 3 that the seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. Or think of all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament what did they point to? 
They pointed to Jesus Christ. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, Paul says. It is the blood of Jesus Christ alone that can take away sin. And so those sacrifices all pointed to Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he would offer to bring all sacrifices to an end. And in Isaiah 53, one of the most clear passages of scripture pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to just have you turn there. I'm just going to read that. It's a short chapter, but I'm just going to read those verses because I want you to grasp from reading this just how clear God made this to his people what Jesus Christ would accomplish. And notice the words that he used there, uses here because there are words that he uses here that Jesus would accomplish when he came in his first coming that Daniel uses in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. It helps us to understand Daniel 9, 24 is talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. 
When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Once again, we see the death of Christ spoken of here, his burial with the rich. Uh, we also see that, that uh, his days will be prolonged, uh, his resurrection. Um, and this is all referred to in Isaiah 53. I want you to know that's also the theme of Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. That's the theme. Christ and his first coming and what he accomplished. I submit, dear ones, that when a system of prophetic interpretation does not include in the 70 weeks or the 490 years of Daniel 9 the most important three days of history, the most important three days in all of his, Israel's history. The three days that are the very foundation of salvation for Jew and Gentile alike. The foundation for the future salvation and conversion of Israel as a nation and of all the nations upon the earth. I su submit to you that such an interpretive system should be viewed with skepticism and should be rejected. It would be like, if I were to liken it in some way, it doesn't, there's, there's really no comparison because I said, as I said, those are the three most important days in all of history, but let's just try to use an analogy. It would be like someone saying, I want to plot out the history of the United States. I want to give a historical uh, account of the United States. And uh, they skip over and call it a parenthesis, uh, the uh, signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, perhaps, again, as far as U.S. history, one of the most important documents to be signed uh, by those in power. That is just a small comparison to what is done in this interpretive system of futurism in skipping over the three most important days in all of history and consigning them not to be a part of the 70 weeks of Daniel that pertain to Israel's 
salvation and to all men's salvation through Jesus Christ. Dear ones, these events are not some parenthesis in Israel's history or in the world's history. They are, in fact, the apex of Israel's history and of the world's history. In my earlier years as a Christian, I embraced this false interpretive uh, system of futurism myself, but by God's grace, and it was by God's grace alone, I came to understand that the zenith, the highest point of the 70 weeks of Daniel, the 70th week, is not about a future rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. It's not about future sacrifices that will be offered in that rebuilt temple. It's not about some future antichrist from which Israel will be saved. But the mountain top to which the 70 weeks of Daniel chapter 9 reaches is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says in Revelation 19.10, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit, the life of prophecy is the Lord Jesus Christ. In that 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks is realized the foundation of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness in Christ to Israel and to the entire world. So as we continue our work through the 70 weeks revealed by Gabriel to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, let us consider what six events Gabriel states are determined by God to occur uh, within these 70 weeks in Daniel 9.24. Now, today we'll only have time to cover the first three of these events. God willing, next Lord's Day, we'll cover the last three of these events. But let us work through these events and determine when did they occur. Because according to Gabriel, each of these six events occurred within the 70 weeks of Daniel. And I hope that we'll see they were all fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ, which again is a part of the 70th week of Daniel. So the first event that is to occur, according to Gabriel, is to finish the transgression. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression. Very quickly and briefly, by way of review, before Daniel had even finished uh, praying about the 70-year uh, period of desolation, 
that was about to come to an end as he studied the books and found in Jeremiah 25, 12 that, that after 70 years, Israel's desolation and captivity in Babylon would come to an end and they would return unto their land. The angel Gabriel appeared, even before Daniel finished that prayer, appeared in human form to Daniel in order to supply God's answer to Daniel's prayer. What we find here by way of the revelation that Gabriel brings from God to Daniel of these 70 weeks, it goes much further than Israel's soon physical return from Babylonian captivity to rebuild the sanctuary and the city of Jerusalem. And it goes beyond and prophesies the coming of Messiah, the Prince, who would through his own sacrifice redeem his people from their sin. Daniel was praying about a physical return of Israel from Babylonian captivity, but Gabriel reveals to Daniel that Jesus Christ would bring about a spiritual return, a spiritual restoration from sin and Satan's captivity, a far more important captivity from which the Lord would deliver his people than Babylonian captivity. Gabriel declares that God, and some of this we covered last Lord's Day, but Gabriel declares that God had determined and purposed that there would be 70 consecutive weeks 490 days, and using the day-year principle, a day for a year, 490 consecutive years that would directly relate to God's people Israel and to Jerusalem, but also would relate ultimately to all of the world through Christ. When it says here that God has determined, again, we ought to understand history is not haphazard. It's not without rhyme or reason. Your life is not without rhyme or without reason. There is a purpose for everything in your life and in mind. History is your life, is the life of your loved ones, is major events, is minor events, history is everything that occurs. And it's all under the hand of Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And here we see again, God has determined that 70 weeks would occur that pertain to his people Israel and to the city of Jerusalem. All of history is his story, God's story. History is God's loving plan of redemption to rescue sinners from the guilt, the punishment, 
and from the power of sin. That's the, ultimately that's what history is about, God glorifying himself in that way. Gabriel declares that God had purposed within this 70-week period of time, or 490 years, to finish the transgression. That is, to, to make full, to make complete the transgression. Now, the definite article, the, here is used in the Hebrew text to indicate a particular transgression that brought Israel's sin against God, as it were, to completion, to its fullest measure, if you will. The greatest transgression of God's covenant people, Israel, was their rejection of Jesus Christ and their conspiring with the Romans to crucify the Messiah. There was no greater transgression, no greater breach of covenant than that one. No greater betrayal, no greater going after this world than that. As a result of that most heinous transgression and rebellion against the God who had called them to be his own people, to be his own bride, God was going to bring upon Israel a far greater desolation than the Babylonian desolation. God was going to bring upon them for that most heinous transgression and rejecting Christ and crucifying him. God was to bring the Roman desolation against the people and the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, just again, if you'd like to turn there with me, notice again the severity of this and what the Lord says. Matthew 23, beginning with verse 32. He says to Israel, Fill ye up then, the measure of your fathers, that is the measure of sin of your fathers. Fill it up. How? By way of their rejection and by way of their crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Fill it up. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. 
from the blood of righteous Abel and to the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation, the generation to which Jesus was then speaking. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your, your house is left unto you desolate. Your house, the, the temple, is left desolate, will be destroyed. And for many, obviously, for much longer period of time, uh, than the Babylonian captivity. They will be in desolation. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 through 16, Paul says concerning the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. The Jews, you recall, cried out as Jesus was being tried, crucify him, crucify him. Luke 23, 21. And then in Matthew 27, 25, they cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. There was no transgression of Israel in all of its history can compare to that, the greatest transgression. That was the epitome of Israel's rebellion and shaking their fist in the face of God. When did this great transgression occur? Well, it occurred in the 70th week at Christ's first coming not 2,000 years after his first coming, but at his first coming. Not during some parenthesis or just before his second coming, but at his first coming. The second event that is spoken of in Daniel 9, and to make an end of sins. Although the transgression of all transgressions was committed by Israel, Jesus voluntarily fulfilled the great design of his sacrificial death to make an end of sins for his elect, both from Israel, his elect from Israel, and from the Gentile nations as well. So that our sins, dear ones, our sins no longer hang over us awaiting God's righteous judgment. No longer is that the case. God's people to make an end of sins. Notice what how this is described in the book of Hebrews and by Paul in Hebrews 9:26. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Paul says that the end of the world was at the time of Christ. In other words, that's what's called the last, beginning with Christ and afterwards, his first coming, are the last days. 
The last days are not simply that which will occur yet in the future. The last days begin with the first coming of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says occurred, his sacrifice, his once offering himself, occurred at the end of the world. That's the final age. Began. The age of the Messiah began. Christ's first coming. But that's, again, very, I think, very clear. In the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin. That's the same thing as what Gabriel says to Daniel, to make an end of sins. Paul says to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice also in Hebrews Chapter 10, verse 10 says, By the which will, that is, by God's will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 10, 12 then says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. And then in Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Jesus made an end of sins. As to the guilt of sin, as to the condemnation of sin, and as to the power of sin. You see, it was the design of the Jews at that time to destroy Jesus but it was the design of God's infinite love through Christ's sacrificial death to save all his chosen people from their sin once and for all. As Jesus said just before he breathed his last breath, he said, it is finished. The Greek word tetelestai means Paid in full. The debt of sin is paid in full. He made an end of sins in his first coming. You see, this is, I do believe in the future conversion of Israel and all the nations to Christ. But when did the Lord Jesus make an end of sins by way of his own sacrifice when he came the first time. That will simply be in the future an application of the ground of their conversion unto Jesus Christ. When Jesus made an end, when he put away sin by his death. This particular Hebrew word for sins here, <clears throat> to make an end of sins, is used or translated 116 times in our authorized version as not simply sins, but as sin offerings. And so it may also be understood that Jesus came and he made not only an end of sins, but an end of sin offerings as well, sacrifices. You see, that
that's the way it's used, for example, as I said, 116 times, but one example in Ezra 8.35. As the children of those that had been carried away, which were come out of the captivity, offered burnt offerings unto the God of Israel, 12 bullocks for all Israel, 90 and 6 rams, 70 and 7 lambs, 12 he goats, notice, for a sin offering. That's the word that occurs in Daniel 9.24, to make an end of sin. Here it's translated, 12 he goats for a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering unto the Lord. Why is that important? Well, I believe it's important that not only did Jesus make an end of the guilt and punishment for the sins of his people, but he also made an end to the necessity of all sin offerings that are found in the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Jesus brought to an end. It doesn't continue by way of any necessity thereafter Christ's death. He ended it. They were all shadows, Paul says in Hebrews 10.1. They were all shadows in the Old Testament pointing to the sacrifice of Christ, which alone can take away sin. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. <clears throat> Only the sacrifice of Christ can make us perfect in God's sight, in Christ's righteousness. Well, when the sacrificial system was brought to an end by the death of Christ, likewise, all the ceremonies associated with the sacrificial system. The feasts and the festivals associated with the sacrificial system of the Old Testament were likewise brought to an end so that they are not to continue, so that we do not continue to celebrate Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, so that we do not continue to practice the dietary laws that are found in the Old Testament. They have no religious significance any longer. If anyone wants to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament, they do so, they ought to do so for merely health reasons, not for religious reasons, because the religious reason for doing so was nailed to the cross of the Lord Jesus. That's what Colossians 2.14 says. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. All of those ordinances, ceremonies, sacrificial system of the Old Testament was nailed to the cross of the Lord Jesus. So God has spoken in his word, no more sacrifices for sin in a future rebuilt temple as proposed by futurists or dispensationalists. When did God make an end of sin as to its guilt and condemnation? When did he make an end of all offerings for sin? 
He did so in the 70th week. Not in some parenthesis outside the 70 weeks. He did so in the 70th week, which is connected to the previous 69, not separated by thousands of years. To say that Jesus will yet in the future make an end of sins and that we have to separate the 70th week from the first 69 weeks by thousands of years so that this event to make an end of sins is going to happen yet in the future. To say that that will occur sometime in the future is to deny, dear ones, listen closely, it is to deny the absolute efficacy of Christ's one sacrifice to end all sacrifices. It is to take us back into the Old Testament rather than to move us forward in the new covenant it's to take us back to the old covenant it's to imply that there's a greater sacrifice in the future than Christ's one sacrifice to pay the full debt of sin remember this biblical rule of interpretation and it's summarized in this statement. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. We look to the New Testament in order to understand what God pointed to and what was the purpose and what was the realization of all that occurred in the Old Testament. We look to the New Testament to find the realization, to find the fulfillment. And dear ones, to make an end of sins is fully realized in the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third the event, which we'll close with this Lord's Day that is revealed to occur within these 70 weeks to make reconciliation or atonement for iniquity. Very, perhaps very similar to what we have just considered but it does use the word reconciliation or atonement, and we want to focus upon what that is. <clears throat> this prophecy is also to be fulfilled within the 70 weeks of Daniel, and particularly in the 70th week, and it clearly refers to the once and for all atonement of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people. From among Israel, sins of his people who are among Israel as well as among Gentile nations. Although Israel as a nation is yet to be converted to Christ in the future, Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel shall be saved. That is yet to occur. God will not make atonement for Israel's sin in the future because atonement for sin can only once 
be accomplished. And it was accomplished by Jesus Christ by means of his sacrificial death. And the New Testament, once again, makes this very clear. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement, the atonement that has been offered by Jesus Christ in his first coming. Not an atonement, not a sacrifice, yet in the future. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 19, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Christ Jesus, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Reconciling the world, not only Israel, but those in, in all nations unto himself through the atonement of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Why is atonement necessary? Why does Israel and why do we need to be reconciled to God? Well, first of all, God is absolutely holy and righteous and is without any moral imperfection at all. Daniel 9.14 in Daniel's prayer before Gabriel appears unto him, Daniel prays that therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. He's righteous in all his works. Likewise in Psalm 145 verse 17 the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. So we're dealing here not with a God who is mostly holy, 99 and 9 tenths percent righteous, we're dealing here with a God who is absolutely holy and righteous, before whom, in our natural state, we could not even stand. His glory, we could not even, we could not even uh, stand and be able to uh, observe and see because of the glory and the holiness of our God in this natural condition in which we presently are. We, dear ones, are fallen. We spoke of God's holiness, but we, on the other hand, are fallen sinners that have rebelled against God. We have transgressed His holy, His good commandments. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Without exception, that's true of all of us. We have therefore, by our sin, alienated ourselves from the Lord and have become, through that alienation from God, we have become 
the enemies of God. That's what our sin does, makes us the enemies of God. That was true and is true of Israel. It's true of all of us. There, was, there may be many enemies in this world, but God is not an enemy to have. Many enemies may seek our lives, but God is not an enemy that any of us should want to have at all. We may be able to overcome the enemies of this world by various means, but there is no way we can overcome God. We cannot win against God if we are his enemy. There's no way. We will perish in doing so in hell forever. There, was, there is as well no neutrality in this matter. We are either at war with God due to our sin and our rebellion against him or we are at peace with God and God is at peace with us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This state of alienation is our fault and has brought God's righteous judgment upon us. There is absolutely no hope for us in removing this sin or this alienation through our own efforts. In fact, we don't even want to remove it. That's the problem. We don't even want to remove that alienation. We have no desire to remove that alienation between us and God. In fact, we prefer, by nature, we prefer our rebellion in order that we may maintain our own lordship. We think our own lordship over our own lives. And so, dear ones, we're all lost in Adam. We're all lost and walking the broad path to destruction as the enemies of God. That's what we have chosen. Romans 3.11 says, none seeks after God. That's what we've chosen. What did Jesus do? He who was the offended party, he who was absolutely holy, the one who was despised and spat upon and mocked and rejected was the one, the very one, who initiated and offered his life as the atoning sacrifice to reconcile, to make peace between God and believing sinners. Dear ones, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet his enemies, Jesus offered his sinless life for us to remove our sin that separated us from God 
and reconciled us to God now and forever. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says, But God commendeth, that is, proveth, his love toward us. How? How did he commend? How does he prove his love toward us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When did God make reconciliation or atonement for iniquity? It was once again in the 70th week when Jesus became God's peace offering to remove our sins so that we might no longer be the enemies of God but might be instead the friends of God. Might be reconciled unto him and become his beloved children. There was this prophecy of the 70 weeks and concerning here, all three that we have mentioned, these events. To finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. All three of these None of them awaits fulfillment at his second coming. Nor was it a part of some imagined parenthesis. Israel as a nation will be converted to Christ in the future, according to God's word in the New Testament, and will cease to be an enemy of Jesus Christ and become a friend of Jesus Christ by the atonement of Jesus Christ, which was made through a sacrificial death when he bore the wrath of God for the sins of his beloved elect. This all was fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. A couple applications as we end today. If Jesus, the offended and absolutely holy one, initiated the steps to reconciliation and to make peace with us, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, if we take that truth seriously, how should we treat those who have offended us? who perhaps have made themselves sinners, those who have offended us, maybe even made themselves enemies against us. What steps of love are we taking to be reconciled to those who have offended us? No one no one has offended you or me 
to the degree that we have offended an absolutely holy God. Just as Jesus commended or proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners and while we were yet enemies, he died for us in order to reconcile us to himself. So likewise, we commend, we prove our love to one another and we evidence that God's love truly abides and lives within us by willingly following the footsteps, in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus as well. And the second application. If Jesus has reconciled us to himself, and he himself has been reconciled to us through his death, we can never be separated from him. We were once enemies. We can never, if he has died for us, he reconciled us then forever. We can never be separated from him. He may withdraw the sense of his presence in order to stir up within us love and affection for him, to drive us unto himself, to show us that we can't do it without him. We cannot live a holy life without him. We cannot uh, serve him. We cannot keep his commandments. We cannot please him without him. And so he may withdraw a sense of his presence. But once we are made his friends and no longer his enemies, dear ones, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Never. If while we were his enemies, if while at a time when we despised him, and hated him, he died for us, knowing the worst about us. Not, no, not covering anything about our lives. He knew the worst about us. Every sin he knew that we would commit, that we had committed and that we would commit. That's not to condone our sins, but he knew. And yet he died for them all. If while his enemies he died for us, now that we become his own beloved children, now we have become his friends, he will chasten us and discipline us that we might grow in holiness and love for him, but he will never, ever separate himself from us or take his love from us. Romans 8, 38 through 39, Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, no one, not even ourselves. We must walk, therefore, Durance, by faith in that promise. 
not by our feelings. We must not walk by our failures. We must walk by faith in that promise. It is that promise that continues to bring us back when we fall away, when we stray. It is the love of Jesus Christ that continues to work and to draw us back again and again and again. And we see that promise realized in our lives. We realize that his love continues even when we have failed him. His love conquers our sins. His love prevails over our rebellion. His love is supreme, is sovereign. Jesus reconciled us in infinite love to himself. Nothing can separate us from his everlasting love. Praise be to his name. Stand with me. Heavenly Father, our blessed Savior, Lord Jesus, we praise thee and thank thee that thou, through thy love, dost conquer all sin, and thou did manifest that love, that infinite love, in sending Christ to make an end of sins and sacrifices for sin. And in sending Jesus Christ as an atonement for our transgressions to remove that alienation from thee once and for all and that all of this was accomplished in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ within the 70 weeks and in fact in that 70th week at the first coming of Christ. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be lifted up in thanksgiving to thee that thou would help us to rejoice in what thou has brought unto us. Lord, this was what thou was to reveal to Daniel through the angel Gabriel. This was Israel's salvation. This is our salvation. And we cling to our Savior even now. And we praise thee for revealing thy truth to us. In Jesus' name, amen.